Well, if you were here the last two weeks, or especially last week, you know that I asked Pastor Greg if I could steal an extra week up here. So last week up here, but uh, I figured it was better than trying to cram in too much last week. Um, so hopefully this week can be a nice tie-up to these, this series on trusting the Bible. I've done something similar before for the teens, so some of them have heard some of this, but uh, we're going to um, retrod some ground for them. But uh, I'm excited today to be able to share this. Let's pray and uh, ask for God's help, and then we'll jump right in. God, we thank you that your word is trustworthy, that it's um, reliable, that it's reliable in, in such a way, in such a public way, that we don't have to blindly jump. We can trust you and then find the, the uh, fingerprints of that trust all over history. I pray then that you would help us as we examine these things to renew our commitment, not just to a knowledge about your trustworthiness, but to an actual absorbing of it, listening to it, um, living by it that we would know you and know you truly, and uh, that our confidence in your word would, would um, bear fruit in actual day-to-day life. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we, I want to re- recapture some of what we've been over, because I know we have some who are new, and, uh, and then kind of give you a preview of what we're doing this week. Um, in the last couple weeks, we've talked about two things mostly, God's commitment to his word and God's preservation of his word. That first one was really important because that is really the basis of our trust in the Bible. It's what God says about himself, his own word. That kind of self-testimony is the foundation of, of the Bible. Remember, the Bible is not just a collection of moral truths. It's not just a collection of historical facts and, and history and things like that. It is a, a revelation of a person, and God claims to be the author of this book. And so in that way, we would expect that God would be committed to that because he's committed to his word. We read that passage from the book of Psalms that says you've exalted above all things your name and your word. This is how God views the Bible itself. And God goes to great lengths to protect his word. He goes to great lengths in the Bible, and he goes to great lengths in history to do that exact same thing. So fundamentally, we start with that commitment. If God is committed to his word and God has given his own stamp of approval on his word, it is our then job to, to ask the questions of ourselves. Will we trust what God says? But the last week, we focused then on God's preservation of his word. Remember, we had captured that God said he would preserve his word in the Bible. He says, I'm going to preserve my word, but he doesn't tell us how. And so in uh, last week, what we looked at is history. We looked at history and said, well, how did God do this? He says he did, and how did he do it? Last week, we saw that God did this primarily through very ordinary means, right? He copied, had people copy the Bible with an actual pen or stylus or chisel or all the different instruments we looked at. Um, he had them copy the words, and then people would copy those, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, this may give you the thought that some people have had that this is just a long game of telephone. Like, I copy this, and they copy this, and by the end, we don't know if it matches at all. But what we saw in history is that's not the case, and not the case in such a way that God has made it to where we can prove that. We have things separated by hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet there's unanimity across the board. And where we have questions, we engage in this practice of criticism which isn't being critical of the Bible, but rather it's the study of figuring out what was actually said originally. And you do that by studying what, what's left, these remaining pieces. So as people have done that, as we looked at last week, they find certain copying errors because people make mistakes, but God has so preserved it in such a way, even throughout those errors, and in some senses because of those errors, that we can be confident of what's there. In other words, we don't have to wonder if this single manuscript is exactly right or not, and it's just jump or not jump. Instead, what God's done is he spread these manuscripts all over the world, these copies all over the world, in such a way that no one group can control them. There are no two that match perfectly, but through the 
the testimony of all of them, it's easy to come back to, okay, this is what was actually said. You might remember that, that one uh, scholar that we looked at last week said that all the things that we're not 100% sure on, but we got two options on, fit on a, a single piece of paper front and back. This is the kind of testimony we have of the Bible. A lot of those are things like in the book of Ephesus, where we're not sure if it said to Ephesus or not to Ephesus. That's like one of the big things in the, in the, in the New Testament manuscripts. These are the kinds of things we're wrestling over at this point. So we've looked at God's preservation of his word in both copying and criticism. And, and lastly, today, I want to look at one more word, and that is simply the word uh, canon. All right? I thought this was going to pull up. All right, canon, just like that. Which bl books belong in the Bible? Now, I've been intentionally as kind of overview as possible here because there's a lot we could go into. This could be like a 30-part series, but I don't think anybody wants that. Um, but uh, I hope I've given you enough of a taste to kind of understand that you can be confident in what God says. But before we move forward to this canon section, as you've had time to think over the last couple of weeks, reflect over what we've gone over, does anybody have any questions? Anybody have any observations? Anything before we move forward on what we've already covered? It's, co it's totally fine if you don't, but I figured I'd start by that just because I know this is new or newish to a lot. Okay, I'm taking that as let's keep going, all right? That's great. So we're going to ask this question, which books belong in the Bible? And I've got... This quotation up here, this is from an unbelieving person. I just noticed that all my numbers carried over somehow. Sorry, ignore all those numbers. We have one number today. It's all about canon today, all right? This is from one writer, and I'll show you who in a second. He says, the Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. Who chose which Gospels to include? Sophie asked. This is a novel. Ah, the fundamental irony of Christianity. The Bible, as we know it today, was, collected, or was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. This is from Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, which was very popular back in, what was that, like 2004 or something like that. Um, this is a popular premise that people will come up with or, or hear. The Bible is just this random collection of books. Even if we know we have what was written down, we're not really sure what books should have been included. Here, Dan Brown in this novel says, you know, there were 80 some odd gospels and these four just happened to be included in here. That can be kind of shaking. Well, how, how did we get the gospels? How do we know which ones were? Were there other gospels? Were there other books? Were there other letters people said should be in the canon. And maybe you've heard that same thing, that it was Constantine who decided which was in and which was out. These are the kinds of questions that if you haven't encountered them before, they can be kind of intimidating. What, what exactly is this? So what I want to do is, first of all, talk about what a canon is not, and then we'll talk about what a canon is, all right? And in some ways, responding uh, to what the good old Dan Brown says here. Okay, what it is not? First of all, a canon is not a canon, all right? This is not what we're talking about here. You might notice, even if you're bad at spelling like me, that we only have one N here. This is not canon canon, um, so that's the first thing it's not. All right. The second thing it's not is it's not a man-made list of books. This is not the testimony of theologians throughout the ages. This is not what we mean by canon. We don't mean that people chose these books and decided what was in and decided what was out. That's not what this word is intended to convey. 
It is also not a council's declaration. There's a council of Nicaea that sometimes people will point to and say, this was their declaration. Up until then, it was all over the place. People just accepted tons of different gospels, and then suddenly nobody was allowed to do anything else. It was like the church just clamped down on everyone, and this was the only thing people were allowed to do. That's a lot of times one of the things you'll hear. That's not what we mean. That's not what this uh, means historically. It's not what it means um, theologically, what people have claimed it to be. It's not a regionally controlled decision. In other words, this is not a decision by like just the people who happen to be in Alexandria, Egypt, or something like that. It's not just the people who happen to be in the Roman Empire. This is not that case. This is not a regionally, thing, a regionally controlled thing. It was really a universal early church thing. And then finally, canon is not like the process of giving authority to books. Like we have this book and everyone decides, do we give this thing authority or do we not give it authority? That's not what people have meant by canon. That's not what we mean by canon. That's not what um, theologians have talked about when they use this term. So we know what canon isn't or what it's not intended to convey. These are a lot of the things that you'll hear people say, that this is all it is. It's just people deciding. It's a council's decision. It's just a little regional section that everyone had to bow to. Um, it is giving authority to books and deciding which ones are and which ones aren't. Now, as a side note, if the church gives authority to the Bible in that way, then who's in charge? <laughs> The church, right? And that's why a lot of times um, other uh, churches have done exactly that. They've said, we get to decide what's in, what's out, and that keeps us kind of in control. But that's not what we're saying here about what the canon is. So what is the canon? Well, first of all, it's God's selection of his spoken words. And I'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get going. The idea, though, is that this is God's self-declaration about which words are in and which words are out. We saw that, didn't we, when we looked at God's own internal testimony. You have these Old Testament books, and then you have these New Testament books. And Jesus, the apostles, we looked at like Peter and Paul, as they reflect on Old Testament books and describe them as holy writings, as scripture from God. And then they compare New Testament writers to those Old Testament writers and call them both what? Scripture, right? That same thing. This is God's then self-attestation of his words, his spoken words. It is, historically and theologically, it's universal agreement. Among, uh, among the early church. But of course, what I don't mean by this is that there was never anybody who thought any differently. What I do mean by this is it wasn't like a secret cabal of people who decided it and everyone had to bow to it. It was really a universal agreement throughout the, the early church when you look historically. And we'll look at some of those things today. Now, what it wasn't is giving authority. It was a recognition of internal authority. You can imagine, if you were, that you have your favorite writer, all right? Maybe you like C.S. Lewis or J.K. Rowling or some other novelist or something. You start reading a novelist enough or writer enough, and you get a real good sense of how they write. So much so that you could just pick up a book that you maybe don't even, it's a brand new book, you start to read and you think, huh. In fact, this exact thing, same thing happened to J.K. Rowling a while ago. Somebody, uh, she had written, obviously, the Harry Potter novel. She's the author there. But then she wrote under a pseudonym because she wanted to kind of write other things, and that's it, all she was known for. But it wasn't long until people said, wait a second, this sounds like her, and tracked it down and found that it was her. Because people have a certain style and authority, and that's really what we're saying about the books that are included in our Bible, these 66 books, is they have the, they have the sound of the divine. There are actually internal recognitions to the author himself, internal uh, agreement to the author himself. And what we're doing is recognizing this is true about this book, rather than giving it some kind of authority ourselves. Now, as we get going, I'm going to pull up a few quotations, and I'll put them up here on the screen for you. And I'll remind you that if you want any of this, I'll have a PDF uh, on the website afterwards that you're welcome to check out. This is from a book called Scribes and Scriptures. Uh, in Scripture, 
right here too, um, which I was going to mention at the end. Many apocryphal, that means books that aren't uh, cons considered canon. Many apocryphal books were rejected, for some for obvious reasons. The Gospel of Thomas, for example, records Peter telling Mary to leave, for females are not worthy of the light, to which Jesus responds that he will make her male so that he can, she can enter the kingdom of heaven. This is one of the Gospels that is most proclaimed, actually, by people like Dan Brown that says, hey, this should have been included. And yet, we read that, and I hope we're all like, what? <laughs> that is so contrary to everything else we know. That doesn't sound at all like the Scripture. It would be against what the Scripture says. God, of course, can say more, but he's not going to say things that, were, that counter himself. Remember, this isn't just a rec, uh, uh, like a declaration of moral truths or stories. This is a self-declaration. And God doesn't change, and so we should expect that the word itself shouldn't be contradictory to his own self. This is what we find in the Bible. Another writer says this, It's not the antiquity, authenticity, or religious community that makes a book canonical or authoritative. A book is valuable because it is canonical, and not canonical because it is or was considered valuable. Its authority is established by God and merely discovered by people. That's essentially what we're saying, that these books were discovered to have the mark of the divine, and there's a couple things that even biblically speaking, tie them to God himself. And we'll do that here as we keep going. So who recognized the canon? If we're going to use that term recognize, which I like, recognize the authority of the canon, who recognized it? Well, there were some early canonical lists. Um, and the question here is mostly about New Testament books. Generally speaking, even when it comes to secular writers, there are questions about some Old Testament books. But for the most part, by the time you get to Jesus, it's really if these New Testament books are trustworthy or not. At this point, thousands of years later from these Old Testament books, most people aren't questioning those, so I thought we'd focus on the New Testament books. One of the first writers here is Irenaeus. He was just alive just after the apostles died off. Does anybody remember around the time that the book of John, which was likely uh, like Revelation, John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the author of John, when he lived? Anybody remember? Like a decade? Loosely? Anyone want to take a guess? Ninety-ish um, is probably what most people think he he died around that time. But so we're talking really decades after, right? I want you to think forty years in the past. All right, I'm almost able to do that, not quite. You can think forty years ago, not a long time ago, right? And this uh, this is when Irenaeus was was born. He lists off just casually here twenty-two of the twenty-seven books, not as exclusive, but as saying, hey, these are these are the books. When it comes to the gospel, he's even firmer on his conclusion. He says, it's not possible that the gospels be more or fewer than these in number. And he's just listed off those four gospel, uh, those four gospel writers. He says another way like this, the church has four gospels. Heresy has many. Right? So you can see there were other gospels, but they're gospels like the gospel of Thomas that are saying things that are factually across the things that God has already said that are counter to them. So he's one of these early people who recognize the canon. We also have what's called the men. Uh, the Merturian Fragment, this lists the same 122 of 27 books here at about 170 or so A.D. We have Origen's Non-Formalist in 250. Um, he, he says that may lack revelation. He actually, um, Origen does a lot of really interesting things. He actually takes four different translations, or three different translations in the original and lays them next to each other. And by doing so, he preserves a massive amount of, of Scripture, both in the original Greek, and uh, this is mostly New Testament, and then also in Syriac, and I forget the other two as well. 
Origen lists all these things out, and again, he's selecting these things that he says, hey, this is what people have recognized as the authoritative word. So how do they formally recognize the canon? How do they formally recognize the canon? Well, there is this Council of Nicaea in 325, which at this point was kind of a stamp on what people had been universally doing for some time. We'll look at some of, this, some of these details as we go as well. At this point, this wasn't even the main point of their meeting. This wasn't like a huge gathering to figure this out. This was like a side note of this council. And at the time, what they're doing is they're saying, hey, let's, since we're arguing about these other things, let's make sure we know what we're arguing from. We're saying that this is the word of God, right? Yes, we're saying this is the word of God. And that's essentially a simplified version of what's going on here, the Council of Nicaea. Athanasius, which is an early church father of great importance, he wrote this Easter, this festal letter, and uh, he lists all 27 New Testament books at this time as if everyone just recognizes that these are the ones that they have all agreed, yes, these have the marks um, of authority. And then he says this, let no one add to these or subtract anything from them. This is early church. When you read these books, when you read these letters, when you read these quotations, a lot of times what we have is not lists themselves. When's the last time, if somebody read your correspondence, you wrote out, here are the books I believe to be in the New Testament? It doesn't happen much, right? You're not writing that. In fact, probably most of us have never written a letter like that. We don't do that because what we're saying is these are the letters. These are what we have from God. So how would you, if, for instance, I don't know that Pastor Greg has ever stood up front and said, these, I believe, are the 27 books that belong in the New Testament, or these are the 66 books that belong in the, in the Bible. How would you then figure out which books he was saying, I believe these are from God? How would you figure that out? What he preached on, right? What he quotes is authoritative. And this is what we found mostly in the early church. All I'm listing out is when they actually wrote out a list, which you can imagine is not frequent. This is not something they did. This is not something we do. But what they're doing is they're saying, here's what I'm teaching you, and let me tell you what God says about this. And then they quote from these books. This is often what we find, and those are harder things just to pull up here for you because at some point it's just them listing off Bible passages saying as such. But what I want to do is just kind of list, list off these authoritative lists that they're saying, hey, this is what we believe to be the case. And a lot of times it's just kind of an aside. So what are the marks of canon? We've said people recognize these things. What are some of these marks of the canon? Well, first of all, it's ap ap oh, now I can't say it. apostolicity. That's not quite right either. It's, th there we go. All right. Apostolicity. It just wasn't coming. All right. Connected to Christ's apostle. That's what I should have just said. But I was trying to get one word. So there you go. Now no, it's a word no one can say. All right. It's connected to Christ's apostle. Now, there's a reason for this that goes beyond just like, hey, that would be convenient, wouldn't it, if it's connected to Christ's apostles. This is actually starting with that commitment that the word itself is the authoritative thing that teaches us how we should think about the word. So I want you, if you would, to look with me at June, John 16. I've got this up on the screen, but you can also pull it up yourself. We looked at this a little bit ago, but this is one of the passages that really ties the Bible, especially the New Testament, which again is the thing that's mostly in question by scholars, so I thought we'd mostly focus on that, um, ties it to Christ himself and to his apostles. This is Jesus as he's looking to depart, and he says this to his disciples, his apostles, these 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears... He will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, 
I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, what Jesus is saying there, and this is just one of these passages, is, hey, I'm going to leave. I have more I want to tell you, disciples. And I'm going to tell you, but I'm not going to tell you personally. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to teach you these things. And this will basically fill up the other things I want to communicate to you. He's going to speak not on his own authority, but he's going to speak what he hears from me. He's going to declare it to you. So Jesus talks like this a lot, especially in John 14, 15, 16, to his disciples. This kind of thing, that I have more I'm going to tell you, be ready to hear it. And so for a long time, people wondered, is God going to do this? One of the biblical declarations that says God did this is in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul himself, one of the apostles, the late apostle, says this exact thing. We impart this, not in words taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, or communicating spiritual facts to those who are spiritual. In other words, what Paul says is, Jesus said he was going to teach us more. He has, these are the Spirit's words. In other words, there was this recognition internally by the apostles, and this is just one of many texts that point to this idea, that Jesus said he would teach the apostles. He has done so. Here are, the, here are Jesus' words. So much so that the book of Hebrews says that the New Testament is the revelation of Jesus. It's Jesus' words to us. He is spoken in these days by his son. How is he spoken by his son? Through his apostles. Now, without getting into a lot of detail uh, for sake of time, the apostles are people who have seen the risen Christ. Right? Remember, Paul sees him on the road to Damascus, and then his other disciples. They've been called especially to this by the Lord. Paul actually gives his defense of his, apost uh, his apostolicity all right, in 2 Corinthians. And he quotes these things as saying, this is how you know I'm an apostle. Uh, his direct calling by Jesus himself and seeing the risen Lord. In this case, then, when people look, okay, well, let's find books that are authoritatively from God. They're looking to these people. Are they connected to the apostles? Have they been written to, written by an apostle or maybe informed by an apostle? One of those famous ones is likely the book of Mark. Peter is likely a major source for Mark himself. Well, you can think about Luke and Acts. Luke is traveling around with uh, Paul and um, that way recording his journey and what he's been taught. So in this way, people are looking for, is there a connection to an apostle for a reason? Because the Bible has taught us to do that exact same thing. So connected to Christ's apostle. Secondly, is there unique, uniqueness? In other words, is there internal evidence of inspiration, of God breathing these words out? Now, remember, this is a person. What are some things that are true about this person who speaks? He doesn't lie. He doesn't change. He doesn't flip-flop on his ideas, right? Those are a few of those things that can make us reliably look for things that match what he's already said, right? Remember that Jesus and the early apostles and all three sections of the Old Testament said, this is the word of God. So now what we're doing is trying to find that same level of evidence, that internal evidence in the books that we have, and especially here just focusing on the New Testament. So part of that would be, do they fit together? Do they work together as a whole? This is one author, and we would expect that author to not contradict himself. So do these things work together as a whole? So when you have something like the Gospel of Thomas or some of these earlier Gospels, that were that claimed to be by other writers or claimed to be by, by other people, like one of them might be claimed to be by Stephen, like the Gospel of Stephen. How do we know whether or not that's true? Well, does it fit with what we already have? That's one of the signs of God's truly speaking. 
And then thirdly here, universal acceptance. Is it widely circulated and believed to be, to have this mark of authority? In other words, what we're talking about is how God preserved his word was by immediately copying these things and spreading them all over the known world. And immediately what happened is it was this recognition by the churches, this has the mark of, this comes from the Apostle Paul. This comes from Christ himself. We need to listen to this and spread it around immediately, right? To all the other churches in their area. And in that way, there's this kind of universal acceptance, this widely, wide circulation and belief in them. We have this in things like early lists. We have this in things like uh, ancient statements where they actually say as much. And a lot of times that's by quoting uh, a New Testament book and by manuscripts itself. That is the testimony of all these manuscripts. Which ones were copied the most? Even early on, they would say, this is a helpful book, but it's not to be canon. And you'll actually see that when you read these early, uh, these early Christians. There's these lists where they separate, separate out stuff. And then finally, by scriptural quotations itself, like I've already mentioned. And what I want to do is just draw together three conclusions. And again, I've been very, very brief in an effort to, to not be overwhelming with details here. But there's a lot more here. So I want to draw three conclusions about kind of this whole series that I think will help us apply it in a way that's useful uh, to us. And then I have a few resources I want to point out if you have more interest. First of all, uh, the first conclusion I'm going to draw is this, that there's a great amount of God's providence as he secured his word publicly in history. Can we just, as we reflect on what we've learned so far, what are some ways in which God's providence has been evident, right? His, his guiding hand of providence in this whole process of writing the words down and preserving those words? How have we seen God's providence? Yeah. There's so many copies spread all out. That, that was by God's own hand. And that stroke of wisdom, what it does is it immediately takes it out of a, like a universal controlled group of people that can manipulate it. Yeah, good. That's one way in which God's providence has been shown. How else? Yeah. Even internally, this agreement, right, that there's this providential hand as God speaks, he speaks consistently in spite of speaking through different people who are writing it down with their own style and language, which is true in all these. We have these differences in the writers. But there's a universal agreement and doctrine over really thousands of years, which is astounding. What else? How else have we seen God's providence? Yeah, as we, we see all these little tiny copying errors, they actually as a whole, help us say, okay, we really know what was here. Exactly. Good. Yes. Yeah. Even internally, right, we have prophecies and then that are later confirmed that then say, hey, that shows you this was true, right? Good. Anything else, Rhonda? <laughs> right. I think today, because in America and in a lot of the world, like generally, and I know if you you know, depending on your slant of view, you might think that we're majorly persecuted. But generally speaking, we have a lot of freedom, do we not? Um, people tend to think this is how it's always been. But that's not the case. I mean, the, from early days, Jewish people and all the pagans did not appreciate the Christians. Now is when we have it easy. And during, especially these early years, when it could have been snuffed out, God instead preserved it and preserved it miraculously and, and early on. 
Right. As one really simple example, Luke, when he's writing Luke Acts, he's traveling all through this area. And there are all these little regional governors, some of which are in for like months at a time. And Luke just mentions these people one after the other as they move through their journeys in such a meticulous way that you wouldn't notice it. It would just be like, oh, he's just mentioning people. But if you lived in that day, you're like, oh, that guy was only there for a year. And Luke mentions the exact right guy at the exact right region, the exact... It's the kind of thing that you're like, okay, this guy obviously was present. There are all these little historical details. Um, there are people who would claim that the Bible is myth. One of the authors I mentioned earlier, C.S. Lewis, his whole life was spent dedicated to studying myths. And he said, anybody who says that has clearly never read a myth because this is not presented as myth. It's presented as history. And all these little historical details, you don't put into myths because all it has to take is one of them to for people to say, oh, clearly that guy wasn't even there. That whole section isn't true. Or like the Gospel of John in John 5, there's this pool of Bethesda that for centuries and centuries, people said this doesn't exist in Jerusalem. But John describes it as something that was there, as something that had like roofed colonnades and all this stuff. And people are, have always wondered what this was. It wasn't just a few years back that they discovered it. And guess what? It's exactly as John said. And there are all these little details like that that you wouldn't put into something you were trying to kind of pull the wool over people's eyes. Good. Other ways in which we've seen God's providence. God didn't have to preserve that kind of history, but he chose to. All right, this is a good starting list, right? Yeah? You got another one? Yeah. Yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we talked about that. The earliest we had was from like 800 A.D. at that point of Isaiah. And then suddenly having one hundreds and hundreds of years earlier that agrees almost entirely, word for word, an entire scroll was... One of those many discoveries um, that has done exactly that. Secondly, um, authority. God has given us the rule for faith and life. In other words, if we have this preserved truly, we have this preserved authoritatively. To recognize God's, God's providence in preserving this word is also to put yourself underneath of it. And that's what we're saying. Even when, with the books themselves, we're not saying we give them authority. What we're saying is we're recognizing something that's true about these things. And that is that they have that authority. The question is, do they have that authority over us practically? Or is this just a theoretical authority? One of the things that is um, nourishing, really, about true Christianity is this, that the authority is not us. It's not inside of us in that way. It's not our thoughts, our feelings, how we experience things. It's really outside of us. And it, as you go through the history of different religions, the history of different philosophies, the ways of living, it essentially comes down to this. Do I get to be God, or does God get to be God? And if God gets to be God, then he's got to be really God, right? This has to be over me. So Christians, above everyone else, cannot say, well, I know the Bible says this, but in my case, not true. You can't do that. If you're going to recognize that these are the words of God, we have a unique place, we really do, in saying, that is my authority. Transparently so, I am biased towards it. What it says, the answer is yes. I don't get to stand over it. I don't get to critique it. I don't get to change it with the times and say, well, you know, today people don't really like, it doesn't matter. This is what's true, right? Now, that doesn't mean our interpretation of it is infallible. What it does mean is that it is its own authority. 
And our job is to recognize what is there rather than adding things that are there or removing things we don't like. This authority then has to translate to actual real change. Finally, sufficiency. God's word is more than enough. And I hope by at least just this very, very brief overview of these three weeks, you've been given this kind of own call in your heart. What I have is sufficient. I don't need something extra. I remember several years back, somewhere else, I was speaking on something similar to this. And I had somebody come up after me and they say, well, you know what I really want, though? Is I just want, like, God to speak to me, like, just me. And I said, well, if that, if that were to be true, how would you know it would be God? And they said, well, you know, I guess I don't really know, but it would be really special. So, well, by chasing that, and they admitted, I don't really read the Bible much. I said, you're missing what God says he gave to you. And you're missing it and the specialness, the uniqueness of this by chasing other things like that. The reality is, like we talked about, even when you read this book, as a Christian, you never read it alone. You don't. The Spirit of God takes these words and presses them into your heart and causes real growth and change. We haven't had time to go over all these details, but the Bible itself claims to be written not just for us in a generic sense, but for us personally. Paul even says in the book of 1 Corinthians that the things that were written down beforehand were written for our learning, for the ones on whom the end of the world have come. If he could say that in his day, then we can certainly say that in our day. In other words, what he's saying is these things that were written down were written down for you. Not, you're not an afterthought. God didn't say, hey, these are truths. Let me apply them to you. They were written down with you in mind. This is the way the Bible talks multiple times. Book of Romans, book of 1 Corinthians especially emphasize that. So as we end, I, I hope that this translates to actual an actual invitation from God. There's two ways to take a study like this, I guess, if you believe it, all right? If you believe what we've been saying here, there's two ways to take it. Maybe three, but I'm gonna go on two. One is to take it like God beating you down and saying, you should have been reading the Bible more. Or, secondly, to say, God's saying, read, come, listen, fellowship with me. If you only go away beaten down with a I know I need to read the Bible. I should probably do that. I know I need to. You've missed the call. God is not primarily telling you just wrong. You should have been doing this more. He's primarily saying, come. Yes, you needed to. But now my arms are open. Listen to me now. Read the Bible now. Uh, give attentive ears to it now. So would this study on the preservation of the word actually translate to real uh, change? I wanted to just point out a couple things as we end. I tried to find some books that were very, very were much less scholarly, but also helpful. And so these are some I had in my library. I had a couple more that I ended up leaving home because I thought they were a little too thick. But this one, Scribes and Scripture, if you're interested more in especially preservation um, and how the books were copied and how it even got all the way through to English, I would encourage you to look at this. This is a new release maybe a year or two ago by Crossway. Um, the Gospels in particular are the thing that a lot of scholars go after as not being trustworthy because there were all these other ones. And this book by C.E. Hill is technical, but he does it in a way that's almost fun, um, if I can say that, about a technical book. Um, he's, he's actually fairly entertaining to read. He's got a good sense of humor. Um, so you can come thumb through this if you have interest about that in particular. This one by B.B. Warfield is kind of a classic on inspiration. It covers kind of the whole gamut of how God spoke, what, the, what we mean by inspiration, uh, how the canon was selected, kind of everything. It's fairly short, but he was, what, 1900-ish, so something like that. So he's He's at that level of reading, um, but it's fairly short overall. 
this little one uh, is was put out um, by the place I went to school, um, but really helpful because it has a bunch of pictures. It's called the Pictorial History of Our English Bible. We never got to talking about translation. I actually had that in here for this week. I thought it was too much, so I pulled it out. But if you're interested in, okay, let's say we've got all these things. How do we get it into English? This is a really, really helpful one, especially if, if maybe in the past you've heard like, well, only this translation is good or only this translation is good. This really talks you through how these translations were done in the first place. And uh, the history may surprise you. You can look at that. And then finally, uh, this one is more generally about the Gospels, but is Jesus history? And a lot of what this does is what Pastor Greg was talking about, this kind of historical um, testimony to the things that are said in the Gospels. And uh, really, really um, accessible read as well. Um, anyhow, very, very interesting here. So if you're interested in any of those, I'm happy to leave them up here afterwards. While I was, after I prepared this, I think it was Friday night, I was sitting next to Megan on the couch, and uh, there's a YouTube follow, a channel that I follow called Daily Dose of Greek that you're probably only interested in if you know Greek or want to study Greek. But he'll just translate a couple of verses each day, so it's a nice thing to kind of keep up. But on Friday, he posted like a 45-minute lecture, basically, on exactly what we've been doing. And thankfully, I was like, okay, good. I'm, I, was, I was right on with what he was saying. But it's not about Greek. But if you're interested in that, that was just Friday, and I thought it was really, really helpful, really insightful. There are a lot of other resources like that. This one right here, Scribes and Scripture, is put out by the, um, let's see if I can find them. I can't find them right. Uh, the Text and Canon Institute out of Phoenix Seminary. They have a blog that's super helpful. They have like whole articles just de dedicated to like the Gospel of John and how we know and detailing all these things. So really accessible, really helpful. Their whole goal, the Text and Canon Institute, is to basically help regular everyday church people be able to trust their Bible. And uh, so they wrote this book in part to kind of promote that blog and promote their work, um, but really, really helpful. So. I mentioned all that to say if you have more interest, there's a lot more here. This is just a small sampling of books I have. I'm sure Pastor Greg has about 15 more. I've got about 15 more, too, that are more technical. But if you have more interest in this, I hope that uh, this at least piqued your interest. All right, well, thanks for your good attention. I know these kinds of detail things um, can be a little hard to stick with, but you guys have done a really good job, and I, I trust it's been beneficial to you spiritually as well. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll gather up in about 10 minutes for worship. God, thank you so much for your providence as we've just recounted it together. Um, and I pray that we would not just know that intellectually, but then we would trust it practically, that our lives then would be a testimony to this, that you are God and you have spoken. So help us now as we go to worship you to listen carefully to you, to respond with yes, even before you speak, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.